So this afternoon we're going to be studying Luke chapter 5 verses 1 to 11. Luke chapter 5 verses 1 to 11. And I'll pray before we read that. Please join me in prayer. Father in heaven, as we now study your scriptures, I pray, Father, that you would use me to bring wisdom from above. Father, let me not speak according to the wisdom of man, which is but foolishness. Let me not speak according to the doctrine of devils, which is wickedness. That, Father, may those words which I speak, may the teaching which we hear be brought from heaven, as it were, by the power of your Holy Spirit. May we learn according to the wisdom of God and may we be built up in Christ thereby. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 5, starting at verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signalled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Amen. May God bless his word. When you think about it, it's kind of a strange way to go about the business of turning the world that then was upside down. Starting a movement which it is intended will conquer the world and change the very nature of humanity and from this time forward will be directing history or at least let's say from this time forward God will be directing history for the purpose of propagating the gospel and building his church. And Jesus is preaching to a crowd. They long to hear the word of God And it seems as though that's pretty much all that they're doing. You know, he's not rabble-rousing. He's not forming ranks. He's not forming an army. He's not telling people to gather weapons. He's not having a political rally, telling people which leaders they must support, which movements must happen. He's preaching to them the word of God. What would his preaching be like? Well, there are plenty of sample sample sermons in the Gospels. There's the Sermon on the Mount. There's the Olivet Discourse. There are plenty of places where Jesus is teaching concerning the law of God, how to apply the law of God, concerning salvation, the need for repentance, concerning the fact that he alone is the Son of God, that forgiveness is to be found in himself. I mean, all of these things are are, are samples of Jesus' preaching, and we're not told exactly what it was that he was preaching here on this occasion, but we are told that the people were pressing in on him. I mean, they were so keen to hear whatever it was he was teaching. I mean, you just read that and long for the day. 
in a way, you'll long for the day. I mean, we read in church history at times about revivals and about people gathering in their hundreds and thousands to hear a faithful preacher. And you sort of just wish, Lord, visit us again. Bring it again. You know, that people would press in to hear the word of God. And Jesus, standing by a lake, takes advantage of circumstance. He makes circumstance work in favour of the mission for which he had come. There are two boats available and he gets into one of the boats, has the owner of the boat, in this case, a man named named Simon, whom Jesus would later name Peter. And so he'd become Simon Peter and then basically he would just simply be known as Peter, Peter the Rock. And he has this man put the boat a little out to shore and then speak. It's in um, pragmatic terms, good practice. Sound waves bounce off water. Words carry a long way off water. Get a little bit away from the crowd, speak. The things that you are saying are going to be easily heard by all those who are gathered. You have here Simon and his partners, John and Andrew, and they're fishermen. And they tell us um, after Jesus had finished teaching, he told them, you know, it's time you got your reward. And they tell us, well, we worked all night and we've caught nothing. Now, there's a reason they worked all night. It's because nighttime was when they expected to catch the fish. These guys are fishermen. You would think a fisherman knows his trade, knows when and where the fish are to be caught. And uh, so they toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Every... Every um, every little act of obedience, even sometimes reluctant obedience, it's still counted in grace as an act of obedience. I mean, Peter's reply is kind of implying there's no fish out there to be caught. Believe us, we're fishermen. We know this. We worked all night. We caught not a thing. There are no fish out there to be caught. But I have respect for your ministry. People here are loving to hear what it is that you're teaching and I find that I'm quite interested in the things that you're teaching. You say drop the nets? All right, let's get out there and cast the nets. And they caught a large number of fish and and the implication is this is miraculous, you know. Did the fish swim into the nets? Was it arranged that the nets were dropped at just the right place? Was it both things? I don't know exactly how this happens, but they enclose a large number of fish in broad daylight after hours and hours of working and getting nowhere. Such a large number of fish that the nets can barely hold them. And so out come their partners and they gather in this catch and they begin to uh, sink so many of the fish that the boats are sinking. And then... Simon Peter realises something. This is not a normal man. This is not just any other man. This is not just a good teacher. You know, and, you know, people want to tell us Jesus was a good person. Jesus was a good teacher. Some people might, might go so far as to say Jesus was a prophet. Well, Simon Peter wouldn't have responded this way to a man. Just any normal man. You know, if, if whoever, whoever might be the greatest teacher 
of the gospel in the world today. Whether it's a high-profile man or a low-profile man, I have no idea. That's that's in the hand of God. But if Simon Peter were to sit under that person's preaching, whilst I'm sure he would be blessed, whilst I'm sure he would learn because God's people are fed by the teaching of God's word, God's people are built up through the work of God's people in obedience to his commands, I'm pretty sure he wouldn't respond to that person the way he responds here to the Lord Jesus. He falls down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He's realised something. You know, who's in the boat? Well, God's in the boat. God incarnate, Jesus Christ, the eternally begotten Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, the man born of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. At this moment, Simon Peter realises that he is unholy and he is in the presence of holiness. He is sinful. He lacks righteous. He, I mean, he lacks righteousness. He desperately needs righteousness to enter into the presence of God. And he's in the presence of a man who has righteousness, true righteousness, you know, you know fear-inspiring righteousness. You know, why is it in the scripture that people fear when they came into the presence of holy angels? Well, I'm sure part of it is simply you're in the presence of a creature or a being that is completely different, you know, where we're, we're, we're a fleshly creation, a solid creation, and, and, and an angel is a spirit being that has the power to appear as a man when God so permits such a thing. But a holy angel is an angel who has lived for thousands of years in the presence of God and never joined the rebellion, never sinned. A, a creature, and only a creature, but even so, a creature without and apart from sin. And it's at times like that that you can't help but become aware of what you are. And what are, you know, if, if you have no holiness of your own and you enter into the presence of someone who has true holiness, what, what can only happen other than you, you come under some kind of conviction? And sometimes you sort of meet older Christians who are sort of, as it were, right next door to heaven, you know, the next thing that happens is they're going to go into the very presence of the Lord and there's a certain peace. There's a certain um, spiritual life in them that though you look at them and you know that their body is dying, you know that they have been with the Lord and that in truth, in terms of their spiritual life, in terms of their Christian life and maturity, they're a long way in front of you. Well, it's... it. it, it that's a little bit of the feeling, but imagine how intense this would be if it were the Lord himself, the Lord Jesus himself. So Peter has this moment where he realises in with clarity. He realises with clarity, he realises um, in, in a painful way that this man, though he be a man, this man is not like me. I'm a sinner. He is not. I have no righteousness. He is filled with righteousness. He is 
a man like I am, and yet he is far more than just a man like I am. Verse 9 reads, For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken, and so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. What's the assurance here? The assurance is that this holy and righteous one who has not only the right but the power to to, to judge, to condemn, has come in mercy. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I've come for you, but I have not come against you, is basically what Jesus is saying. I've come for you. I'm bringing you in. I haven't come to push you out. I've come for you. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So it's basically the calling of Simon, the calling of Simon Peter. By uh, consequence, we're looking also at the calling of James and John, the calling of three of the Lord's disciples. And they're being called from a very ordinary human life. And I don't say that in, in, I'm not meaning to belittle a very ordinary human life. If you think about it, what the Lord does here, our God, through Jesus, is he actually honours very ordinary human life. They're living very ordinary human life. They have a trade, they work, they labour, they deal with the world, they're, they're working for profit, they're seeking to feed their family, they're seeking to be faithful in, in, in the ways that they can be faithful. They're very ordinary. And the Lord Jesus comes to that very ordinary life. And in a way, he still says to them, you will be ordinary. Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. The fisherman has been caught. But the fisherman remains a fisherman. And so, in a way, even though Peter is now transformed from a fisherman catching fish to God's fisherman being used to catch men, he still remains this very ordinary man. A fisherman you were, a fisherman you are. A fisherman you were for the benefit of your family. You were working, you were earning an honest living. Now you are a fisherman as sent forth by God. You're you're no longer catching fish, you're catching men. You remain a very ordinary man. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. If this is the calling of a disciple and the disciples become the apostles, what do we learn from it? What, what, what comes from this that applies to us? Especially when you consider in the long run, none of us are to be apostles. There were a certain group of men whom the Lord Jesus called to be apostles. He used those men to be the foundation of his church. Those men spoke in many ways as an Old Testament prophet speaks. The words that they spoke were the word of God. The writings that they wrote are the, are the word of God. That the, They wrote the Holy Scriptures. They had a role to play that no one else will ever play. I mean, if, if you... 
I, I, I remember I met someone, he's, he's a really highly qualified guy, he's an intelligent guy, he's from Africa, and, um, and he told me he was a Christian, and I asked him what church he goes to. He says, oh, I don't go to any church. I listen to the teaching of the apostle blah, blah. When I say blah, blah, it's because I can't remember the name. And it's deliberately disrespectful because any teacher that sets himself up as an apostle, you might as well just call him Apostle Blah Blah. I follow the teachings of Apostle Blah Blah. And he was basically talking about some online teacher who was transmitting out of somewhere in Africa and uh, Apostle Blah Blah. I follow Apostle Blah Blah and there's no, ter- there's no church here in Australia where I can get teaching like I get from the Apostle Blah Blah. And I said, yeah, mate, um, if you're not gathering with Jesus, you're scattering from him. And I don't know what good you think you're doing sitting in your house listening to the Apostle Blah Blah come in over the internet every now and then, but it's a, it's a waste of time. And I can tell you right now, don't listen to him. Why? Because he calls himself an apostle. It's that easy. You know, he's putting himself on a level with Peter and Paul and John and those others whom he has no right to claim any association with. We're not being called to be apostles. We're not, we're not of the 12. We're not going to author scripture. We're not going to have an apostolic ministry where signs and wonders were done in the places that we preach. You know, I'm, do I say that God cannot do great and powerful things? That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that we have no expectation of being apostles like Peter, John, Andrew, Paul and the others. We have no reason to expect it. We we are not those men. That is not our mission. But even so, consider their calling and certain aspects of their calling and you will find that in many ways we have been called just as they have been called. Now, the doctrine of the effectual call is basically a... a, um, much to be respected doctrine that comes through Reformed theology. The effectual call is the call that though a person might try to resist, in the end it's ultimately irresistible. The effectual call is when God calls a person to salvation, to serving God, and the effectual call, though a person, as I said, may resist, in the end they lose. (laughs) All right? It's kind of, I wasn't looking to become a Christian, but God called me and lo and behold, eventually... I was converted. The effectual call. I might have kicked and struggled for a while, but in the end, the call was powerful. The call was life-changing. And this is an effectual call that we're seeing right here in front of us. So consider what happened. First of all, Jesus came to them. Jesus came to them. In our humanity, we we tend to forget that God is always first cause. God is always the mover. We are always the responders. You know, if, if it's so easy for us to imagine someone is seeking the Lord, someone is seeking God. Yeah, sure, absolutely. People can seek the Lord. People can seek God. The Apostle Paul told that the Apostle Paul in his preaching commanded that people seek the Lord. But why are they seeking? You know, what did the Apostle John say? We first loved God because God first loved us. 
They're seeking because God has started calling. The Lord came to them where they were. A fisherman was no greatly respected trade. You know, you're not a highly educated man. You're not a man with what's considered to be a professional career. You're not a man that people sort of step aside for as you walk down the street when you're a fisherman catching fish in the Sea of Galilee. And furthermore, part of their profit would have been made in salting fish and selling salted fish to the Romans, which is, to a people who hated the oppression of Rome, some form or other of dealing with the enemy. So they're not highly respected people, but in whatever it was they were doing, wherever they were, God came to them. So many people in the world talk about this desire for some kind of significance. You know, they, they, they worry that life is meaningless. They worry that there seems to be no purpose. They worry that there seems to be no reason why they're in the world, that their work is meaningless, that their life is meaningless, etc., etc., etc. Well, on one level, I understand why because it's not that hard to see that the truth is, in terms of cosmic consequence, you're not much more than a speck of dust. That's true. But the significance and the meaning comes from God, who comes into our lives, whoever we are, wherever we are. He comes to us. And we have this sort of habit of disrespecting People's work, people's jobs, people's incomes. It's just, unfortunately, it's ingrained into us. And, you know, there are truck drivers who look down on forklift drivers, for example. And I meet them and I see them and I hear the things they say. And yet I happen to know that there are many people who think that truck drivers are moronic idiots who ought not be allowed out of the house, let alone behind the wheel of a a 65-tonne vehicle moving down the highway at 100 kilometres per hour. You know, we we have this tendency to dishonour people and to dishonour what they do. And there's this, and it almost doesn't matter who you are or what you are, you have this tendency to look down on certain people. Well, understand, why was Simon a fisherman in partnership with James and John, sons of Zebedee? Because ultimately it's God who made them fishermen whether directly or indirectly, whether using means and secondary causes or whatever. It's God who made them fishermen. It's God who created the earth. It's God who created the fish. It's God who created man. It's God who gave mankind dominion over the fish, over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea, to quote Psalm 8. So in the eyes of the world, these common nobodies who are living an utterly meaningless life, in the eyes of God, are people to be called into the kingdom of God. God places value on humanity. God places value on humanity. Yes, in the cosmic scale of things, we could be likened to a speck of dust. But hey, you're a speck of dust that God sent his son into the world for. A speck of dust that his son shed his blood for. A speck of dust that Jesus values more than the wealth and the treasures of the world. 
So Jesus comes to people where they are and he calls them where they are. Peter's fishing and Jesus doesn't make his fishing pointless. He actually blesses the fishing. Cast out your nets. And they catch probably the greatest catch they'd ever caught in their lives. You know, a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. (laughs) Imagine that. You've, You've been doing this job for however many years they've done it. Let's imagine they're in their late 20s and they've been fishermen working on this lake like this from the time they were old enough to get out in a boat, throw out and haul in a net, probably from 12 or 13 years old. They've been contributing to their family. They've been learning the family trade. They've been helping run the family business. Never seen a catch like that. Never seen a catch like that. You see, what I'm saying is if, if, if God despised the way that they earned their living, why would God at this point in time choose through Jesus to bless their efforts and show them that everything they caught came from his hand? Even the fishermen. We caught nothing all night. So what are they to learn here? We caught nothing all night. Well, we caught nothing all night because God did not give us anything all night long. And now, today, in the broad daylight, when it's the wrong time to fish, we caught so many fish, the nets were breaking and the boats were sinking. Why? Because God said, now you're going to get fish. It's, it's very easy and it's a trap that I can fall into and I'm sure any of you can fall into. It's very easy to learn to hate your work. It's very easy to complain about how hard it is and how things go wrong, etc., etc. It's very easy to wish you had some other work. As I said, I can fall into the trap. It's not right. If we have work and it's useful work, we have it because God gave it to us. If our work is in any way of service to the people around us, we are serving God serving the people around us in our work. Outside of God and outside of God's grace, you're living meaningless lives. Without meaning, without purpose, without honour, without justification. It's true. But the thing is that applies to every single person who is outside of God, outside of grace, from the street sweeper through to the royal family. If they are outside of grace... Their work, their life is meaningless, without purpose and without vindication. But when God gets to work, when God gets involved in our lives, even the very work that we do becomes service to the living God. So that's why the Apostle Paul told his people, work as though you're working for God. In all that you do, the people who watch us work, If they know we're Christians, they're getting some idea of what Christianity is in the life of a person from the way we do our work. And that's very convicting for me and in the industry I live in and or the industry I work in. And it's very convicting for me in terms of my own attitude to work on different days. Sometimes it's tough. If you, you know, say to me right now, Scott, you should always be thankful for the work you have. And I sit here and I say, yes, I know it. And you ought to be very thankful that God has given you a role to play 
in, in this society of people around about you and you ought to be playing it with all your heart and working and doing all the work that comes your way as though working for God, as though God is right there watching over every single thing and expecting me to do everything to the best of my ability and it's 100% true and it's also 100% true for each and every one of us and our life and even the things we do day by day in our life, the, the, the boring mundane details of our job, the little things at times that we do that you think no one knows, you're doing them for God. You're doing them for God. Just one tiny little illustration, and I, I don't give you this because I want you to think I'm good, but my employer recently gave me his newest vehicle to drive. Okay, he, he, he put me to the front of the line, you drive this vehicle. It's practically brand new. And then he said to me, and I want you to know why I gave it to you to drive because I want it maintained in as near to new condition as possibly can be done. And I know that you'll clean it out and you'll look after it. Okay. My friends, the world looks at us. My boss is not a Christian, but the world looks at us. The world knows what God expects of us. And we've got a duty to live in the way that God expects of us in the sight of the world around about us, even driving a semi-trailer, even driving a nail into a piece of wood, even working in a, in a, in a, in a um, shop altering clothing, whatever it might be. We're, we're, we're called by God to do these things in the sight of God and these boring, difficult, mundane jobs actually become important service in the kingdom of God. And, you know, as I said, and as I confess before you, we get a bad attitude, we whinge, we complain about how hard it is. Things don't always go right. He didn't have to, but he does. And he comes to us where we are. And he's already made us what we are. And he's going to make us what he wants us to be. And part of that is obeying him in the things that we do all the time, every day, with diligence and faithfulness in the sight of the world around about us. So in this call of Simon, Jesus comes to Simon on the fishing boat. On the fishing boat. Now, my friends, there's an important part of your Christian experience that should be a part of your life. I'm not saying that this should happen every day of the week. I'm not saying that this should happen all the time. But there is an important part of Christian experience that should be part of your Christian life. And that is that at times you should have the realisation that you are especially in the presence of God and you have no righteousness of your own. Okay, it's not always a nice process. It doesn't feel good to know that you are in the very presence of God and you have no righteousness of your own. But it is a part of the Christian call to a life of service to God that you have that moment where you realise that you are in the presence of God and the truth is you're only there because God is tolerating you, because God is being gracious to you. Not because you've got any claim, 
not because you've got any righteousness to boast of, not because God owes you anything. God owes nobody anything. He's God. He's the sovereign ruler. He's the king. He's the Lord. He owes nobody anything. But it's a necessary part of your Christian life and a necessary part of your calling to follow Jesus and mine. It is a necessary part of this that we come to the point where we understand that we are completely and utterly at his mercy and he has set his love upon us because he has set his love upon us and for no reason. So whilst we're reading here the calling of an apostle and none of us are called to be apostles in the way that Peter, James, John, Paul and the others are apostles, it's also the calling of a disciple. These men were called to be disciples. And guess what? Each and every one of us is called to be a disciple. And part of the necessary experience of that calling to become a disciple is that you realise it's by grace. All by grace. 100% by grace. It's not just that we don't deserve the favour of God. The truth is we know that we deserve the judgment of God. Peter says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. It's not just depart from me because I know you're divine. I know you're righteous. Depart from me because I know that I'm worthy of destruction. Depart from me because I know that I am a sinful man. When I'm in your presence, it's hurting me. This is hurting me, Lord. I'm feeling the pain. I'm looking at you, but somehow or other looking at you is looking in a mirror and the mirror is not showing me what I want to see. I'm seeing myself for what I really am. That's part of the call to become a disciple. And so, my friends, it's necessary for us to be convicted to be easily convicted, to understand that this call to follow Jesus is given to people who are in no way worthy, including especially ourselves. How unpleasant do Christians get when they forget that? Some people, it's almost as though in a church they can do nothing other than cause unrest and unhappiness. And they just cannot and will not get on with anyone. No church is good enough for them in the long run. What have they forgotten? Or what perhaps they have never had. They have forgotten that what they actually deserve is death. Just like everyone else. They're able to look around and see the faults of the people all around them. And they've completely forgotten or never have looked into the mirror of our Lord Jesus and seen the faults that are in themselves. And so, you know, there's this little old um, aphorism or saying that we have there, but for the grace of God go I. Well, how easily is that forgotten? And when people forget it, how much trouble do they stir up in churches? Demanding this, demanding that. Not good enough for me. There's no faithful church around here. You know, 
There are people we can think of, names don't even need to be mentioned. Basically, this congregation is not good enough for them. But they claim to be in agreement with us. What have they forgotten? If they ever knew it. They've forgotten that when they came into the presence of the Lord, they deserved to be killed. If they never knew it, well, maybe they were never called in the first place. It's a necessary part of the calling to be a disciple. And that's why we try to preach the whole counsel of God. We preach the guilt of sin. We preach the grace of forgiveness. We preach the glory of the Lord. We preach the need for imputed righteousness. We preach the whole gospel to the best of our ability because this is what constantly reminds us that we don't have what's needed. It's all of grace. We're totally relied upon God. Apart from Christ, our lives, our jobs, everything is meaningless. But in Christ, everything has purpose and place and we're on a path to eternal life. Eternal life is already ours, and yet there's more eternal life coming our way. If you can have more of eternal life, well, we get it in Christ. Praise God for God's grace and God's mercy through Jesus our Lord. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, let us ever remember that we are saved by grace through faith and that we have nothing of which we can boast and that if you had left us alone in this world, Our lives would indeed be nothing of any import. But you have made us your own through Jesus Christ our Lord. And wherever we are and in whatever we do, you have visited us. And we've come into the presence of the Holy One, the Righteous One. And we've been convicted of our sins. Now, Father, we've been convicted also of your gracious mercy. And for that we praise you. And may we go forth rejoicing in your goodness and your mercy to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.